And let's pray. Father, we come before you now. I want to ask your continued blessing on our service this morning. I want to thank you for uh, the kids you've blessed us with and as they're preparing for the Christmas musical that um, you would minister to them. Thank you for the people helping out with that. I want to intercede for Brian and Aurora Kneebone and ask that you would be ever-present with them and that your spirit would rest on their house, God, and there would be peace there, that you would have them to continue um, to persevere, God. Lord, we ask today as we're gathering as a body that um, many churches across this nation and across the world are gathered as well, And we thank you, Lord, for the unity that we have through your son, Jesus. Unity with you, but also unity with one another. So we ask, God, your blessing on those churches that are faithful to preach the gospel, that you continue to be with them, continue to minister uh, to them, continue to minister through them, Lord. And we thank you um, that you are good and gracious to have your light still shining In this nation, we pray that it would shine and continue to shine and shine even brighter, God, that you would continue to touch lives, you'd continue to change lives, including our own. And Father, now we ask for your word as it goes forth to continue to do the work that only it can do. And we ask, Spirit, that you would use your word and do a powerful work in us and through us. For your glory. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 1. It starts in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, how many of you know um, what language the New Testament was written in originally? Just a few people? Or you're just afraid to answer? All right, it was originally written in Greek. I think many of you know that. It was actually written in what's called 
Koine Greek. That's just the word uh, for common. Now, when I went to um, college where I first took Greek, we didn't actually learn Koine Greek. We learned what's called Attic Greek or Classical Greek, which was maybe, I don't know, four to 500 years before the Koine um, came about. Um, they're very similar, but just like any language morphs over time, um, Greek did. English um, has really morphed over time. In fact, if you ever try to pick up an old English um, book, literally, you could not ring it, read it. It's not the King James stuff. I have confidence you could read that and understand it. But um, old English uh, literally looks like a completely different language altogether. Languages morph <coughs> over time. Thankfully, all the added Greek I took there wasn't much morphing into Koine, so it really wasn't um, that challenging for me. Here's the interesting thing, and the reason that it's called Koine Greek, <clears throat> because it was the common language at the time shared by all people pretty much in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, the term that you might have heard before is called the lingua franca. It's a language that people share in common, even though it might not be their native tongue. It's the language by which they can communicate with one another because everyone knows that language. So the Romans were speaking Latin, the Jews were speaking Aramaic, but everyone was speaking Greek. Now think about that for a second. When you can remove language barriers, communication becomes a whole lot easier. And think of God's providence in this. I want you to turn in Acts, look at chapter 2 for a moment. And I want you to notice this. It says in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Okay, so these Jews, they're dwelling there, right? That's where they're living. And at this sound, verse 6, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Right? So one of the first signs, really the first sign of the Holy Spirit being given to the church is these people speaking in these different languages. But how are they, as they're each hearing it in their native tongue, how are they saying what they say in verse 8? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They're really speaking the common language, Greek. So they're hearing it in the tongue that they, they know as maybe the tongue they grew up with, the native language, but they also know Greek. They're much more educated society than we sometimes give them credit for. But look at this list here. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they all hear it in their own language, but I want you to think for a second about how God used language to spread the gospel. Because 
Imagine if there was not a common language at the time. I mean, think of how challenging that would be to spreading the gospel. Now, God could continue to use uh, the, the gift of tongues in order to spread it, uh, like he did at times in the New Testament. But think of how challenging that would be. Yet God here saw this and used it. Everyone speaks Greek. You could travel hundreds, thousands of miles, and everyone speaks Greek. So you can go on a mission trip, and, and language is not going to be a barrier to sharing the good news. Now, is that a barrier today? Well, it, depending on what country you go to. But many of you here have been on mission trips where language has been a barrier to communicating the good news, and you've had to use a translator, right? Honestly, it's one of the reasons um, I love Belize so much, is that many people, not all of them, but many of them speak English as their primary language. And without fail, every kid in school speaks English. Um, Even when I went down south, which is not as developed, large portions of the people spoke English. Um, So communication barriers can affect the gospel message being shared. Uh, How many of you know more than one language? All right, I see like one and a half, two, two and a half, three and a half hands, all half hands. Like, you don't want me to call you out to say something. I get it. Only about 20 to 25% of Americans know a second language. I think that's kind of high, but um, probably the ones that that know it, um, they're the Americans that their their primary language might not even be English. Um, Compared to uh, Europe, about 56% of Europeans know two languages. What, after English, what do you think is by far the largest language spoken in the U.S.? Spanish, good job. Um, It was spoken at home as the primary language, Spanish, in uh, about 40 40 million people spoke it as their primary language at home. Um, That's about 13% of our population at the time they did this. Uh, What do you think was the second? Chinese. It's just a numbers thing, right? Yep. Nearly 3.4 million speakers at home. Uh, and then Tagalog was 1.7 million speakers at home in the U.S. Okay. I've heard of it before. I forget who, who speaks that, actually. Does anybody know? Tagalog? Mike Smith, well, well get in here and help us out. English, man. <laughs> yeah, what, what, who speaks that? The Philippines. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so imagine, so we're speaking languages here, friends. Imagine for a second you didn't have a Bible in your own language. Now there's roughly... Uh, 7,400 languages in the world today, right? Only 683 have the full Bible. 7,400 languages, roughly. Seven, roughly 700 
have the full Bible, so, you know, one in ten out of these languages. Um, about 3,400 have anywhere from just certain parts. I mean, it could just be like the Gospel of John or something. Um, but about 3,400 have anywhere from just certain parts to the whole Bible. But 4,000 languages don't even have a translation of any sort of the Bible. Not even like a book of the Bible. Now, some of them are in process. Um, I talked to a lady the other day whose parents are in Nigeria working on a new trans- a translation um, of the Bible in a, in a language that has not been done yet. So Wycliffe, Door, other organizations are doing that. But, um, I mean, think about that. 4,000 languages don't have any translation, any whatsoever. Not even, you know, the book of First John or something in their language. Um, so we need to get the word out. Like, literally, we need to get the word out. One of the ways we can do it, obviously, is support uh, missionaries and organizations like that. Um, but here's the thing. We can get the word out because in, in America, it's not a challenge for us. If anything, the lingua franca today is really English throughout the world, right? We, can, we, get, we get to kind of cheat a little bit, and basically most of us just know one language because the rest of the world has English, if not as their primary language, their secondary language. Um, but the vast majority of us don't have a communication barrier with our neighbors, right? Most of your neighbors, maybe all your neighbors, speak English. We don't have a communication barrier with coworkers, right? They speak English. <clears throat> don't have a communication barrier with friends, right? It's kind of hard to be a friend if you can't really communicate with them. Don't have a communication barrier with our family. Well, we probably have communication barriers with our family, <laughs> okay? But it's not because we, we don't speak the same uh, mother tongue. <clears throat> we probably are speaking different languages at times. But my point is we speak the same English language with these people that we're surrounded by on a regular basis. So we can get the word out. We can get it out. And what I want us to look today, go back to Acts 1. He says in verse 8, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Notice it says you will be my witnesses. It doesn't say maybe or probably, but will. If you're called by Jesus and you're one of his followers, then you will be a witness. The form here, it's actually an imperative. It's called the imperatible future. That's the fancy word. It just means it has universal and timeless force. It was, it was true back then, and they were supposed to do it. It's true for us, and we're supposed to do it. And when we're dead and gone, it's going to be true for the next generation of believers. Uh, this command was just not a one-time thing for the disciples to go do and be done with it. It was a command they were going to carry out for the rest of their lives. So we're all witnesses. If you're saved, you're a witness. All right? So everyone say, I'm a witness. All right. <clears throat> so the question isn't, 
if you'll be a witness, but it's going to be rather how good of a witness you're going to be. Right? So what exactly is a witness? The Greek word is martis. What it means, especially when you see it in the plural, is that those who announce the facts of the gospel and tell its good news. Right? They announce the facts of the gospel and tell its good news. Uh, another way you could say it is it's the act of proclaiming the message of Christ. We see it throughout the New Testament. Um, about roughly a third of the time, that word appears in the book of Acts. Why? Because what are they doing? They're spreading the message. They are being witnesses. That Greek word, martis, it later came to mean martyr. They just kind of took it straight over into English. Uh, why was that? Because the idea, really, originally a witness testified, right, to something. But <clears throat> what happened to all the Christian early witnesses? They all got murdered. Okay, So then it became synonymous with a martyr. If you were a witness, you were going to end up likely being a martyr. Um, God, in his grace, at least in America, that's not so much synonymous anymore, right? You can still be a witness and not a martyr. There are places, our brothers and sisters in Christ across this world, um, it's a lot more synonymous. And being a witness is being a martyr. What does a witness do? <clears throat> I want to talk about what we need to do as witnesses. I want to look at four things, okay? First, we've got to be truthful in our testimony. Um, <clears throat> I think it is easy, any, I'd say any pastor or evangelist or speaker at one point or another, um, and, and, and probably even I'd say people who are just sharing, have faced the temptation to, um, how do I say it, say the words in such a way to get a positive response from the person, even though maybe it's not, uh, it's not, they don't really mean it. You know, you can, here's what I'll, I'll, I'll share. Thinking of Belize for a second. We went to Belize. This was a mission trip we did a number of years ago. We partnered with another church. And um, we came back after we had done some door-to-door evangelism. And one of the teams uh, had... Uh, some people from the other church with it, and they said, um, we, I mean, we led 12 people to the Lord. I was like, dude, like, that's amazing. Like, we didn't lead anybody to the Lord. <clears throat> and so, um, as we started talking, and I was, I was basically like <clears throat> asking, what'd you share and different things? I mean, it was just, it was just a watered down, hey, do you want to be saved? Then pray this prayer and you're fine. You know, no repentance, no gospel, no trust. I mean, it was just like, it was like fire insurance. Um, and I think at times we can we have to be careful to make sure that we're truthful in our testimony. Um, we're not looking for responses. Our job is not responses. Our job is faithfulness to the message. All right, the responses is up to the Lord. And if we start trying to gear our message or change our message or twist our message. For responses, well, we'll probably get those responses, but those won't be uh, the responses that really matter. 
because it won't be a real fruit. So we want to be truthful in our testimony that Paul, uh, a few times in the New Testament, uh, talks about God being his witness. It's kind of a serious thing when you think about it. But he says in Romans uh, 1, uh, look there, actually, Romans verse 1. He says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. So a a few times he does this in the New Testament, really calling on God as his witness, that he's attesting that what he's saying is true. Right? Well, you you want to be faithful in your witness to other people. Now, what I'm not saying is, is you have to give the gospel every single time, 100%, the whole nine yards, 30-minute presentation. Sometimes you don't get that opportunity. I mean, if you're at the airport <clears throat> talking to the Starbucks person, you might have two or three minutes tops, maybe. All right. So sometimes you're giving them parts of the gospel, aspects of the gospel. Maybe the Lord wants you to focus in on love. Maybe he wants you to focus in on sin. Maybe he wants you to focus in on grace. I don't know. So you're emphasizing certain parts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about putting it in such a way that you really water it down. You just you, you water it down so much that the call to discipleship, it says the road is narrow, but the call to discipleship, it's like, man, anyone can enter that. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. So we, we want to be truthful in our testimony. <clears throat> um you got to fight at times against that. Look, some of you maybe are sharing with people and are sharing with people and are sharing with people. You haven't personally experienced much fruit. Look, you don't know. You don't know what chain, what, what link in the chain that you are, okay? If you think of that, there's like a chain that's being built, you know? And all these people, you're building uh, a chain link, you know, to that person. And you're a link in that, in that chain. And you don't know what part you are. All right, you might be one of 20 that's needed, all right? And maybe you're the 13th person, all right? Some of you personally can testify. I mean, you heard the gospel numerous times from different people before you finally responded. I was one of those people, all right? Numerous, numerous, numerous times I heard the gospel, all right? And people just didn't give up. They were faithful to keep preaching. So you don't know where you're at, all right? God knows, but you don't. And, and you don't know, I think sometimes, and I'm looking forward to the Lord revealing that to us someday, but sometimes I think we get these opportunities, maybe with people we don't know, or maybe with a coworker, and we share. You don't know the lasting impact. You don't know what that person did that night when they went home. You don't know how much they chewed on that. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, it's a trust issue, right? You're trusting the Lord. Hey, I'm going to be faithful, Lord. I'm going to be a truthful witness, and then you do with it what you want. God wants a faithfulness from us, all right? No, no farmer, think about this, no farmer um, can produce fruit. He can't produce fruit, right? I mean, he has to have the seed first, and he has to have the ground, and he has to water it. And that's the image we get in 1 Corinthians. It says God causes the growth. God causes the growth. A farmer can't 
himself produce the fruit. He can produce the environment. He can buy the seed. He can make everything perfect. But even with something like that, creation itself, the natural world, God causes the growth. But it's the same in the spiritual. All right? We can't save people. Praise the Lord, right? We can't save them. God can use us to save people. Even Paul at times says he saved this person or that person. Obviously, it's understood that God is the one doing that. God does it. God does the growth. So we trust him. We open our mouths. We trust him to use our words however he sees fit. All right? Some of my worst times, which I just had one a couple days ago where I'm just tripping all over myself and hardly being able to speak any right words, God will use them most powerfully. And sometimes when we think it's all eloquent and fine and smooth, nothing. Why is that? Because it's God. God's going to use it however he sees fit. He's going to be the one that uses it. So we be truthful in our testimony. Second, we've got to be faithful, not just to the facts of the cross and the empty tomb, but also to their meaning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Well, we are stewards of the gospel message. God has given it to us to steward it, to be faithful with that message, not just to hold on to it, but to share it with others, to get the word out. Look at Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right, some of us need to underline that first part of verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, right now, there's not much suffering going on for Jesus in America. But it's coming. It's on our doorstep. And it is happening to some people. We need to take to heart this verse. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Why? He says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Friends, someday we're going to look back on this life, and we're just going to laugh at the frivolousness of it and what we did with our time, and what we did uh, spending our time, and what we did with our finances, and, and how we interacted with people. Because this is just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. So we get, we get one shot. Every person gets one shot to make a difference, to be used by the Lord, to glorify Him. So this is our chance. And should God uh, <clears throat> be willing to... to increase your life on this earth even longer past this day, that's a gift from him. But it's not to be spent in your own revelry revelry and pleasure. It's to be spent on his glory. So we we have to be careful and we have to be faithful, even unto death. 
Third, we've got to be upright. I mean, think about this for a second. How many testimonies, how many witnesses are damaged from a life lived in selfishness and sinfulness? I mean, you can just ruin your witness just like that. Think of what 1 Corinthians 6 says. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. You are not your own. And your life has to match what you're speaking. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. If you live a sinful life, you preach a gospel that, it's, that is empty, <clears throat> guess what? If people look at your life and it doesn't match what you're preaching, I mean, who wants that? You're preaching a false gospel. So you, if you're living a sinful life, you're preaching a gospel that is empty and unable to help people. That's what you're communicating to people. It's powerless. It can't help you. Why could it possibly help others? So we were given by God the Holy Spirit. And what's he doing in your life? He's making you holy. I hope. But notice, you weren't given the love spirit or the selfish spirit or the sinful spirit. No, you have the Holy Spirit. So, like, take a hint from God. He wants you holy. All right? He's given you his Holy Spirit because he wants you holy. He strengthens your witness. And your life strengthens your witness. It shows that your message and your life go together. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So your witness has to match your actions, else you hurt your public witness. So we have to be upright. We have to be holy. Fourth, we've got to know that being a witness is not optional. All right? I've said it already, but we have to realize, like, God has given it to us to share. He's given us the duty of being ambassadors. Acts 1.8, you're one of the witnesses. Each one of us is one of the witnesses. And I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says in verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like, may that be true for each one of us. You know, so passionately involved in the case that we're seeking to present. Woe to us. Now let me read you a couple names, see if any of you have ever heard of these people. I'll give you a hint ahead of time, you haven't. Isaac Milner, probably nobody's ever heard of him. Edward Kimball, Robert Eagland, Mordecai Ham. Well, Isaac Milner led William Wilberforce to the Lord. And William Wilberforce was the one who abolished the slave trade in England. Edward Kimball led Dwight Moody to the Lord. Just a nobody. Nobody knows about today. 
Dwight Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. Robert England led Charles Spurgeon to the Lord. All right, people refer to Charles as the Prince of Preachers. Mordecai Ham led Billy Graham to the Lord. Greatest 20th century evangelist. Here's my point. These men were witnesses for Christ. Not the ones I just read, but those other men. Milner, Kimball, Eaglin, Ham, like they were faithful to be witnesses. So maybe you're not the next Billy Graham or the next Charles Spurgeon. I don't know. Maybe you are. That'd be awesome. But maybe God wants to use you to reach the next Billy Graham or the next Charles Spurgeon. There is an outreach event. Oh, it was probably 40 or 50 years ago. It was a youth outreach event with uh, Youth for Christ. They did this big thing and... I mean, they set it up as best they could. Probably had like 200 youth. Um, Actually, it wasn't Youth for Christ. It predates that. One person out of like these 200 youth gets saved. One person, this this little boy. And uh, one of the speakers is is telling one of the other speakers, and I guess we kind of, I guess we kind of failed wasn't a really good night. We only had one response. And this, this little boy who made that decision, he overheard that. But that little boy ended up becoming the person who started Youth for Christ, an organization that has touched many, many, many thousands of lives, uh, including my own. <clears throat> so we don't know the impact of even just one decision. We don't know how God is going to use something like that. Obviously, those men at the time thought their outreach event was rather uh, unsuccessful. But they had reached the one that God wanted to reach. And I think God has for us, he has one for us that he wants us to reach. Maybe it's not going to be the next person who found youth for Christ. Maybe it's not the next Billy Graham. But you know what? Here's the thing we have to remember. Billy Graham's soul is worth just as much as your soul. And Charles Spurgeon's soul is worth just as much as your soul. And it's worth just as much as the unbeliever's soul. So whether those people ever do anything for the Lord or not, they're valuable. They have an infinite value because them being made in the image of God. That alone should be an impetus for us to share the gospel with them. Not necessarily because of the potential. That is just an encouragement. But because God has created them. God wants fellowship with them. God wants to know them. A couple more things. One, we've got to remember something. the word is going forth and people are getting saved. Now, just because you might not be seeing it in your small circle, that's possible. Um, That doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, In some countries, they're experiencing revival of a nature that those countries have never experienced. And God is doing amazing, amazing, amazing work. I heard a story 
the other day of this Muslim woman. She gets saved. I'm not sure what country it was, but it, it was in America. Um, I want to say Kyrgyzstan, but I might be wrong. She gets saved. Um, and at, for a couple of years, she struggled with whether to get baptized or not. That's kind of a big thing in those foreign countries. <clears throat> but she decides to get baptized. Her, her husband is just like a nominal Muslim. So it's, uh, you know, she knew he wouldn't mind. She actually invites him to the church service. And, um, and he doesn't speak much English. But later he emails the pastor. <clears throat> and this is what he says. Um, one, he couldn't get over the unity of the church over so many ethnic lines. You know, so they're in this foreign country, but there's all sorts of ethnicities, and they've all come to one church together to worship, and that really just blew him away. Uh, second, he, he saw no difference in women and men worshiping together, which that blew him away as well. Um, in the mosque, at least in this country, that you know, they separate them. So that, he just was blown away by that in a good way. Um, third, he loved being there together as a family. Again, not an experience he had ever had in a mosque. And fourth, he was amazed at the love people had for one another. Now, now Jesus talks about that, right? John 13, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then in John 17, he, he says basically the unity of the church will be the greatest argument for the deity of Christ. Read John 17. You'll come to that conclusion. So he couldn't get over the unity. He couldn't get over the love. Um, when they're getting ready to baptize, because they're in this foreign country and it's not always friendly in those situations, they're like, don't take any pictures. Well, the husband, he doesn't understand English very well. So he takes pictures of his wife getting baptized. Um, now, she's from Iran. They go back to visit in Iran and he's, he's like showing his family these pictures. He's like, oh, they don't care. You know, look, my wife got baptized. No, they like flip out. They flip out. And <clears throat> they, put, uh, they put basically a death warrant on his wife and his family. They're pe- persecuted. So they got to they gotta leave Iran. Uh, they, go <clears throat> they go to France because there's, you know, a Muslim population there. The, this Iranian network is so big, they get word to... The, the, uh, the French Muslims, and they're going to take her out. So <clears throat> um, she calls the police, and she's like, they're trying to kill me. And they're like, well, they haven't killed you, so there's nothing we can do. But they're like, well, they're trying to kill me. <clears throat> um, and so all along, you know, they're, I mean, they're literally on the run. Um, they've, lost, they've lost everything. And the husband is watching his relatives and how they're reacting, and meanwhile he's reading her Bible. And he's, they've lost everything, cars, houses, everything. I mean, they're living in a refugee camp in Europe. Now, if anyone has a reason to be upset with God at that point, it'd probably be this Muslim man. Like, but what happens? He gets saved. He gets in the midst of all this persecution. The Lord uses that to drive him to him, not away from him. So my, these stories, this is just one story. These stories are happening. Hundreds, thousands. It's crazy what God's doing in the Muslim community. It's, it's, it's amazing. It literally is, is miraculous. And we need to be praying. Right? We need to be praying for the missions abroad, but we need to be praying for the missions here 
in our own backyard. Listen, I want to encourage you with something I felt like the Lord impressed upon me during worship. <clears throat> is I want to make sure we all have a correct view of, of our Father, of our Heavenly Father. And <clears throat> the Father is pleased with you. All right? Your Heavenly Father is pleased with you. Now, don't raise your hands, but parents, don't raise your hands, but do you have any wayward kids? Um, do you still, if you have wayward kids, I mean, do you still love them? Well, of course you do, right? I mean, they're your kids, right? Even in, in spite of them <clears throat> maybe not walking the best path or not being where you think they should be, like, you love them. Why? Because they're your kids. And maybe some of the things they're doing don't exactly please you, but just the fact that they're your kids, I mean, like, you delight in them, right? I mean, there's a reason I think we even, as parents, go and watch our kids participate in sports or dancing or whatever it might be. Like, we like... We just like watching them. We get delight out of that. And sometimes I feel like we, we kind of walk around and we feel like because we're not doing X, Y, Z and everything else, like the Lord isn't happy with us. Listen, the Lord has much, much, much grace and mercy on each one of us. All right? And <clears throat> your kids probably aren't, don't have everything you'd like them to have checked off, but it's not like you hold that against them. It's not like you love them any less. It's not like you're displeased with them, right? So my encouragement is, is, is let's make sure that we have a, view, a proper view of how God views us. And if you're a believer, he delights in you, is what the scriptures say. All right? he's, not looking, he's not looking to, to get you. All right? He's not looking to zap you. Um, he's a loving father, and a loving father, Hebrews says, will discipline his children. But sometimes I think we act like we're always under the hand of discipline. All right? And unless you're living in sin, you shouldn't feel like that. All right? God is very gracious in his interactions with us. Your heavenly father sacrificed his own son for you. He really couldn't have expressed his love for you in any greater way. And I hope, if, if you don't know your Heavenly Father, if you don't know God as a Father, that you will see what He has done for you and want to trust Him. That you will see that He sent His Son for you. And that you would want to know this Father. You would want to know this God who has come down to be with us. Because it's an amazing thing. God has touched many of us in here. He's touched many of us. And he has been gracious and blessed us abundantly, a thousand, a million, a billion times over. He's very gracious. We have riches and riches and riches, all right? Even if your house, even if you ended up like Job in the Bible today, you'd still be super blessed. All right? You could, you could lose it all, and you could still be super blessed. 
I mean, you have the greatest gift. Really, the greatest gift is a relationship with the Father. Right? It's almost like a bonus that you get eternal life. But you get to commune with God himself, the creator of the universe. You can have fellowship with him, and you can have fellowship with his son. So I encourage you, one, if you're a believer, enjoy that. Look at, have the right view of God and his view of you. And if you're not, I encourage you to trust in the finished work of what the Father did through his Son. Let's pray. Lord, use us as your witnesses. I pray, Lord, that we would have a proper view of how you view us. And if we've been beating ourselves up over stuff that we shouldn't be, that we just hand that over to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us a boldness that as Revelation talks about, we would take that to heart. Do not fear. What can man do to us? And I pray we would get opportunities to share our faith and then we'd be faithful to take them. Help us to trust you in this, Lord. It's a trust issue. Help us to trust you. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in us. We thank you that there are faithful witnesses that have gone before. Help us to continue to seek you, Lord. Help us to be one of those numbered faithful witnesses. You are so good to us, Father. And Spirit, we ask you to fill us and continue to fill us and to continue to fill us to have the Holy of the Holy Spirit in us and to walk in your ways and to have the fruit that only you produce. We pray this with the authority we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.